Uh, this week's study, I think probably the last one of these that we're going to do, is just another simple sentence. When God speaks, he can be trusted. And that's really the whole study tonight. Just that thought. And we'll see that that thought grows out of basically it's assumed in every verse. We're not going to read every verse. We'll read a couple of representative verses. But uh, search, search yourselves and make sure I'm not lying to you that there isn't a place in the Bible where it assumes that God is lying. I mean, if you haven't read the whole Bible, uh, especially if you claim to be a Christian, you should. You need to. You should never say that you base your life on a book you haven't read, right? If that, sorry, if that challenges any of you. Uh, let it challenge you. I, I base my life on the Bible. Great. Have you read it all? Well, parts of it I've read lots. <laughs> no, right? Um, how do you know there's not something crazy in there, right? Don't take my word for it. What if I'm hiding things in the corners of Leviticus that I hope you never read? Like, well, they'll never read Leviticus 13, so we'll just pretend that's not there because if they did, it would be bad, you know? So, but search and see if there's a verse that assumes that God cannot be trusted. What I'm going to attempt to show tonight is that basically the Bible assumes that this God is trustworthy and that working off that idea, you come to a a position um, that... Christians have traditionally called the inerrancy of scripture. Um, and for some of you, like maybe words like this, like they're just not really on your radar screen. And you know, they don't have to be like, if you don't like this part of Bible studies, like where all of a sudden like a word comes out and you don't know, like it's totally cool. Like you, you don't have to be into that. You can be like, I love Jesus. I believe the Bible. I want to serve Jesus. I tell people about Jesus. That's awesome. Like you can be that way and God loves you and go earn treasure in heaven and save people for the kingdom. Praise the Lord. If these things have sort of impinged on your world, if you've ever heard a word like inerrancy, it just means uh, inerrant. And errant means, you know what errant means? Like when a pitcher throws an errant throw and it like goes into the stands, it means big mistake, right? Way off course. Inerrant means there's nothing like that in the Bible. There's nothing that's a mistake. There's nothing that's an error. Um, in fact, let me, uh, let me read you three I told you I'm just going to do a little ramp up to the study. Let me read you three definitions of inerrancy, and they're from different places, and they're all great. So just so we're really clear about what, uh, what I'm saying. Three different definitions. First, um, being wholly, completely, and verbally God-given. So these are obviously you know, guys that write books, write sentences like this, but you can still follow it. Being wholly and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teachings, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in in, in, its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. That's one statement of inerrancy. Here's the next one. These will be on the blog tomorrow if you want to get them. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, which just means the original documents that were written, and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. Now that's, you know, everything they affirm means everything they say is true. So if Satan says something and then you go, you take out the part where, and Satan said, and you just read Satan, you know, or uh, the classic one is the verse that says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Right? So the, the way to show this is absurd is to take that. The fool, the fool said in his heart out and say, the Bible teaches there is no God. I'm like, no, it doesn't. And then someone quotes that to you and you're like, Oh my gosh. Right? The Bible doesn't say there is no God. The Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. See the difference. So the Bible doesn't affirm that there is no God, but it does affirm that there are people who say that in their heart. And in order to quote them, you have to have that sentence in the Bible anyway. Obviously objections get a lot more sophisticated than that, but that's a classic one. 
They will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine, right? Christian teaching or morality or with the social, physical or life sciences, right? Here's the final definition of inerrancy that I'm going to read. Scripture is inerrant because the personal word of God cannot be anything other than true. It's kind of where we're going tonight. When he gives us propositional information, meaning facts, when God tells us facts, right? The fact is a, a proposition is a fact. And he certainly does give us that. That information is reliable, though expressed in ordinary, not technical language. The written word further is just as inerrant as the oral message of the prophets and apostles. And their word is just as inerrant as the divine voice itself. If you didn't follow that, it's okay. Cause the rest of the study is going to attempt to basically say that same thing over again, but there's three definitions of inerrancy. Um, and here's the basic logic before we get to the word starting in, in Psalm 12. If you take the other two studies we've done that when God speaks, it can be written down and that when God speaks, he's, such an effective communicator and he made our minds, right? That's helpful too. Uh, that he knows how to talk to us. When you take those two things together, you, you, I think you end up with logic sort of like this. So see if this feels compelling to you. The Bible reveals a God who is able to communicate to us, has shown a desire and a decision to communicate with us, actually has communicated with us throughout history, right? It's really happened has shown that he communicates clearly and effectively, has shown, and here's tonight's study, he has shown himself to be perfectly faithful and trustworthy at all times. So if you have a God that can talk and that wants to talk and that has spoken and who is good at talking, and this God is perfectly faithful and trustworthy at all times, I mean, and if you add the fact that he knows everything, right? Including the future as our God, his claims to know, and I think has demonstrated that he does, then you would come up with a statement like, statement like this. If all that's true, therefore, since the Bible is, communi- is communication from this God, and since nothing about the medium, right, nothing about the fact that it's a book, or the authors who wrote it present any barrier to this God communicating, then this Bible must be totally trustworthy, faithful, and true at all times. I hope you don't mind like some extended logic there, right? So this God can communicate and he's good at it. And if he's knows everything, so he doesn't have to worry about making a mistake based on ignorance. And if he's only good and faithful all the time, so he doesn't, he never deceives us. Right. Then anything he says is going to be perfectly trustworthy. Right. When God speaks, you can, you can trust him. Um, not to mention anything he says is going to be factually accurate. Right based on how he wanted to say it. Uh, now there was a little stipulation in there. I'm just going to say this before we get into the study. This one guy said, um, the information is reliable though expressed in ordinary, not technical language. That's really important. And if you're interested in this sort of thing and you want to come up and talk to me about it more later, I'd love to talk to you about it. There's going to be a lot of sort of details that we won't discuss tonight. And if it impacts you or you're interested in it and you want to get in the conversations, please, we love conversations. I would love to discuss that with you. Any, any sort of, you know, maybe technicality that I'm, if you feel like oh, you kind of glossed over this, but this is a big deal. Like come talk to me. Um, it's very cool. Christians and Christianity loves questions. You can probe, you can examine it because it's real, right? You can put a rock, you know, under an electron microscope and really look at it. Cause it's really there. And Christianity is the same way. It's not afraid of questions. So feel free. Uh, if you feel like there's anything I haven't, you know, really gotten to tonight, um, 
But the fact is that when God speaks, he can be trusted, but that doesn't mean that everything he says is like to like German engineering precision down to the 10th decimal point. Do you know what I'm saying? Because he's speaking in ordinary language. And like some classic examples would be, if you asked me how old I was and I said 36, you know, and I wrote that down, someone could come along and say, you know, that statement was not true because he was actually 36 and I don't know, my birthday's in April. How many months would that be? You know, I, I don't even know. Four months and 32 days. And so this, clearly you cannot say that Brian's word was inerrant because he wasn't 36. Do, do you know what I'm saying? And what I would say back to them is, well, I, Right, but I was just having, I was having a conversation, and I am 36 years old. That's how we talk, right? That's ordinary language. Do you know what I'm saying? If you said to me, how long is that book you're reading? And I said, oh, it's 400 pages. But you looked at it, it was actually 403. But people do this with the Bible. Do you know what I mean? And it's, ha, see? Well, sure, if, 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 if it was a, you know, if my boss at a publishing house says, how long is this manuscript? And I say 400 pages and it's 403. Well, that's an, that's an errant statement. I made a mistake and I'm going to cost the company money, right? In that context, I need to get it right. But if we're just talking at the beach and I say, oh, it's, you know, it's a 400 page book. I didn't make a mistake. Even if I wasn't, as one guy says, you know, totally precise. This one author said maximally precise. Does that make sense? And there actually is a lot of things in the Bible like that, right? Uh, and it's because of the kind of God speaks in normal conversation. He doesn't, he's not writing a technical manual. Now this is sort of, a, we're not going to go down a lot of rabbit trails like this, but this is one thing that I think should be said, but let's back up. I had to turn to Psalm 12 and everything I said so far, we didn't need to start the Bible study with it. I could have started with scripture and worked our way up to it. The problem is I just think that would have taken too long and I want to do this in one study and not five. Do you know what I'm saying? So like the better way would be to start with scripture, read way more verses that we're going to read and then put the pieces together and come up with what I basically started with. But instead I, I kind of cheated. I told you basically where we're going. Now I'm just going to read some scriptures to you and I invite you as I have in all these studies to study this yourself. Um, again, I just got to say this, you know, all of a sudden old conversations with old friends have flared back up in my life. And, you know, uh, some, sometimes, you know, I get accused or even just the church I represent here gets accused of like, really like not allowing questions. And there's these funny statements, but maybe you feel this way. So it's not funny to you. Like people say like, just because my thinking didn't fit in with the accepted Calvary way of thinking. Um, you know, if you're not from this church, that might sound funny to you, but for people that grow, grew up in this church, it, it, those things get said, do you know what I mean? As if there's sort of, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of one accepted way of thinking and the people who are in authority, which is funny that I became one of them because I was just a kid running around this church, you know, for years and years and years, but now I'm seen in a different light. I get it. Uh, sort of enforce that way of thinking. Do you know what I mean? And a big one is the inerrancy of scripture. So, you know, an old friend just said to me, like, she felt that when she started questioning that she was really like, looked down on, like, was she going to be called a heretic? Were her ideas going to be accepted? And you know, I remember the history. It wasn't that long ago. So I don't remember things going down that way. Do you know what I mean? Like I remember the conversations a little differently, but if that's how she felt, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to replicate that. Do you guys know what I'm saying? So, so whether this is your home church or not, if, if you're, if you're a Monday nighter, if you're part of the young adults group, if you got questions, if these things aren't clear to you, like, it's cool. Can I, can I say that like explicitly? Like you don't have to agree with me here. Um, like, you can go to heaven, not agreeing with me with everything I'm about to say. You can, you can trust Christ and disagree with me on this point. Now I'd love to speak with you because I think that you can believe all sorts of things. As long as you really trust Christ for salvation, you can, and you can still go like go to heaven. I just to use a shorthand, right? 
But those other things you believe, if they're not true, they're going to be really unhelpful to your faith. Does that make sense? So as a pastor, my job isn't to like see that everyone, you know, hits the lowest common denominator. My job is to do my best to see what the scripture says and then labor to help everyone see that humbly where I might be wrong, but hopefully like really in a, in a, in a, in a positive way. This is like this, seeing this truth will help you the most in your Christian life. Does that make sense? Now I could be wrong about this, uh, but in all sincerity of my heart, without, without a desire to, to oppress anyone's free thinking, I really believe that after you've trusted Christ for salvation, which is the essential thing, and we'll talk about that later, if you see what we're going to see tonight, and you see it like you, you can hold it in your heart solidly, it's, it's only going to strengthen you. And we're going to come all the way back around to this at the end of the study. It's just going to bless you. So that's why we would do a study like this. I'm, I'm not trying to stamp out anyone's free thinking. So please, do you know what I'm saying? This is an old friend that wrote this to me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, did I do this to her? You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, it gets to you. So if that's you, like it's cool. Ask your questions if you got to ask them. I encourage you to have conversations. I encourage you to come have conversations with us. You know, uh, myself, some of the other leaders, you know, the pastors, Pastor Joe, whoever. Uh, it's, it's all good. And, and we'd like to get into that with you. Um, but tonight, I'm going to give you my best shot for what I think the most helpful um, way to, to understand what Scripture says about itself and what Scripture actually is, the, the most helpful way to understand that, okay? So we're going to start in Psalm 12, and we're going to read a little representative sampler of verses that, that say these things. Um, and we're just going to move from right to left, and we're going to end up in John. So you'll just be flipping in one direction. So Psalm 12, verse 6. You'll notice a lot of verses we're going to read sound like this. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth. You know, one of the things people say about the idea that scripture is inerrant, the idea that, again, I, I didn't actually want to say inerrancy, and I've said it like 20 times already. Um, is that the Bible never says the Bible is inerrant. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there's no verse that you can look up that says, and behold, thus saith the Lord, scripture is inerrant. So people say, you know, the Bible doesn't actually say that about itself, right? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure some of you have heard that. So like the first time someone says that to you, you might be like, ah, wait, what? Right? Now, but look at this verse, because this is going to be the key to tonight. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. You shall keep them. O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. Now what we saw on week one is there is no distinction made in the Bible between the spoken word of God and the written word of God. The scriptures are referred to as God speaking. God speaks and tells people to write down what he said. And he bridges that gap. So we can't, we can't look at this based on the first week's study and say, well, that's just God speaking. That's not talking about the Bible. No, if you understand how the Bible works, it's most certainly talking about the Bible. Hence it says, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. That's speaking of writing. And that's how they spoke of what they were doing. They were preserving the words of God. And the idea is that God's words keep. You can freeze God's words in the Bible and they stay fresh. There, I just came up with that illustration. It's probably a bad one. We probably shouldn't talk about freezing God's words. But you can preserve them, right? That's what it says. And they're pure. Now, what is, here's the question to ask yourself. What is the psalmist trying to say about God's words? Right? Um, 
Because it's true. The Bible never says that. Let me just read this. I, I worked this out today. Never says uh, there's no sentence in the Greek or Hebrew Bible that can be translated. The scripture is without any error. That's true. But the Bible also never anywhere says the Bible has mistakes, right? You're not going to find that verse in the Bible. Or there's no verse that says you will one day find that some of the things which are reported as true in this book didn't actually happen or they're not actually from God, but they're just people doing their best to figure out what God was doing or saying. So you'll have to use your knowledge you've gained from other places in order to discern what's really true and what's really not, which is really what people want you to believe when they, when they tell you that scripture has mistakes, right? But there's no verse that says that in the Bible. And the Bible also never says, this is another thing people say, once Jesus came, he showed us that a lot of things that we thought were from God actually were not. So use what you think he meant to see what is really from God and what is just human in the Bible. That's another thing people say. But you will not find any of those verses in scripture, right? The Bible doesn't say any of those three things, which means you can't use the, the Bible never says argument here. And people do use that, right? The Bible never claims to be inerrant. Well, it also never claims to be errant. So that, that argument doesn't work. Instead, what you have to do is just see what the Bible actually says and see what the authors of scripture and the Holy Spirit through them actually said about what they were doing and what they were writing. And what they say is that, well, it's right here. A God who is totally faithful, all-knowing, unlimited in ability, and completely without sin or mistake communicated to them or through them. In other words, what they wrote is the words of God. This is what I have written down. And those words are the same quality God has. Now look at these verses in Psalm 12. What is the author trying to say about the Bible, about God's words? They're pure. I mean, yes, he's using poetic language, but you can't really get clearer than this, can you? Like if you took silver and you purified it, and then you purified it again, and you did it seven times, and you preserved it forever, do you have silver or what else do you have? Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yes, he's using a, an image here, but isn't he trying to say these are the purest, most authentic, trustworthy words you could possibly find? I think that's what he's saying. Go to Psalm 19. Again, we're just seeing what the Bible actually does say about itself. Psalm 19:7. The law, and that's the, the Torah, right? The five books of Moses, but it, it's used to speak of the whole Old Testament. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's about as close to a statement of the Bible as an errant that I think you could get, but some people don't like that. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, right? You can completely depend on it, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. They're never wrong. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, there's nothing impure in it. There's no mixture, right? Like that silver, right? Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And he goes on. What's he trying to say there, right? Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is, as I recently read in a really good book, the guy calls it a long love poem to the Bible. I never thought of it that way. And then I was like, oh, he's kind of right, actually. Read it yourself if you never have. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You might take a couple days to get through it. And you'll be shocked that there was allowed to be written a love poem to the Bible in the Bible. And it might, if you've received some teachings that go around, 
and have for a few years that Christians are too into the Bible and they need to be more into Jesus. And we'll talk about that as those two things are different things. It might sort of jar you that God would have allowed a love poem to the Bible in the Bible. Isn't that like idolatry? And the answer is God doesn't think so. And if I just think that's an incredibly intriguing thought, why not? Right? What, what do I really have in my hands? If God allowed like, you know, where, where is that? Where's the verses? Oh, how I love verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day, right? I mean, just this pouring out of love to the written word of God, right? Maybe, maybe I haven't really fully grasped what God did when he allowed his words to be written down and preserved to all generations and how huge of a thing it is. And, you know, maybe part of the reason is quite frankly, guys, you know, in America, Bibles, like you stack up Bibles, the covers get old. We throw them out. There's one in every hotel room. If you grew up as a Christian, you might have like five in your house. You find a new one that has a cooler cover. You buy that one. I, I just did actually. It's a really cool cloth bound. Anyway, um, do you know what I'm saying? Like maybe we've forgotten kind of like what we actually hold in our hands, but look at, uh, one verse 142, Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. There it is. Your law is truth. Again, ask yourself, what is he trying to communicate? Look at verse 151. You are near, O Lord. Remember I was talking about the presence of the Lord earlier. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Look at verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. This is why we stopped in Psalm 119. It's really good for this Bible study. (laughs) And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word is truth. Look at Proverbs 30. Proverbs. It's kind of surprising that Proverbs comes up here, but it does. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Proverbs 30 verse five says every word of God is pure. There's that idea again. Heals a sh- he is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Look at this. Do not add to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Wow. Interesting. Now turn to Matthew five. That's the old Testament. There's a lot of verses that we could read kind of like that. What we're going to see is Jesus felt the same way. And this is really key for the Christian. I told you, I think last week that it would be a great summer project for you to read all the gospels and just answer one question. What did Jesus think about the Bible? How did he feel about the Bible? What was his stance towards the scriptures? We're going to look at a piece of that tonight. Uh, Matthew five, verse 17, familiar verse for a lot of us. Do not think Jesus says that I came to destroy the law of the prophets I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now the law of the prophets is a shorthand way of saying the Bible. In Jesus' day, the Bible was what we call the Old Testament. I didn't come to destroy it, them, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, of course, those are the smallest strokes of the pen in in, the alphabets there, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Um, he, He goes on, but the idea here is, Here's just a summary statement of how Jesus feels about the Bible. 
He's not coming to destroy it or set it aside. He's not coming to be its judge, even though if you superficially read the next few chapters, you might feel like that's what he's doing. You know, you have heard it said to you, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman to lust after your heart. In other words, you might say, wow, he's, you know, he's, he's showing how he's sort of like blowing the old thing away. And, but not really that he sets it up and he says, everything I'm about to say, do not interpret it as though I'm somehow like kicking the Bible out the door. I think so highly of it that I'm, I'm, I'm just here to fulfill it. In fact, like he talks like he needs to obey it sometimes. I feel weird even saying this. And this might actually might make some people mad. So don't get mad at me. Just read. And if I'm wrong, just say Brian was wrong in that point. Forgive me. But he says things like, I have to go do this so that the scripture must be fulfilled. Doesn't he talk that way? Over and over again. Right? And here he says, I'm like, I'm just here to fulfill that. I'm not putting Jesus under the Bible. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying we need to challenge the way many people think about the relationship between the two. And Jesus saw the Bible as necessary to be fulfilled and, and as not able to pass away, not even the smallest stroke. In other words, every word is going to be shown to be completely true and faithful before this whole thing is over. Right? Look at uh, Matthew 12. Another statement of Jesus. And what's cool is some of these verses are like, I've been talking about the last few weeks. They're sort of like in like half sentences and little phrases and little asides that Jesus says that you, they're not really the main point of the passage and they're really easy to miss unless you're hunting for them and you should hunt for truth. You should chase truth through scripture like a fox or something. I don't know. A deer foxes, I think are harder to catch anyway. um, You should hunt truth through scripture and you'll find it in places like this. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38. He gets asked for a miracle. Uh, It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, what he's doing here is affirming that the story of Jonah is history. And the reason this is significant is because Jonah is one of the first stories you might throw out, right? If you were going to say that there were things in the Bible that people sort of put there, like we can still know it's basically what God wants us to know, but clearly there are some stories that like, they're just legends. They snuck in and like Jonah would be up on the chopping block. Don't you think? I mean, maybe it's your favorite story. So you do your best to keep it in, you know, the big fish and everything. But for most people, I think they'd be like, well, like, it'd be nice to get rid of Jonah, you know, a big fish. It doesn't really help me to look, you know, smart in front of my friends. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but Jesus says, let me tell you what sign is going to be given to you. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, some people have said, well, that doesn't mean that it's true. He's just referring to a character they all knew. And I got to admit, for a, a portion of my life, I felt the force of that argument. Maybe, maybe he is. Maybe he's saying, just as Gandalf sacrificed his life to beat the Balrog, so I too. Now we're laughing, but if I said that, you would know what I meant, right? You'd be like, wow, Brian's going to sacrifice himself for us like Gandalf did. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you would get it, you know, just like Frodo, I too want to be heroic, you know? And, and I remember there was a time where I was like, I mean, he, he might be doing that. And if they knew the story of Jonah and if they knew that it was just a legend that it snuck into the Old Testament, no one would have thought, do you see how that kind of might work? But here's the problem. Look at the next verse. Verse 
And Kevin DeYoung in his book and scripture that he just released actually points this out and he, and he actually writes about it in a really funny way that I'll probably rip his joke off in one second. But he says, the men of Nineveh, now you know what Nineveh was, right? It was a city Jonah was supposed to go preach to. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed one greater than Solomon is here. Now he does an amazing thing there in that second half. First, he links a very agreed upon historical figure, the queen of the south. No one really doubts that she was historical. She, there's nothing miraculous in her story. She travels a long distance on camels. She hears the wisdom of Solomon and she goes back. Easy, right? History. Like, sure, that almost certainly happened according to like anyone's standards, right? He, he equates that with Jonah. That's the first thing he does. So you're like, oh, okay. So he's willing to mix history in with what some people think is legend. But notice what he does in verse 41. He says that the men of Nineveh who repented at the preaching of Jonah are going to be around in the last day and going to be passing judgment on the generation that didn't pass, that, that didn't repent at the, at the preaching of Jesus. Which means if he is saying like Gandalf sacrificed himself, it was as if he turned around and said, and you know what? In the last day, all of Gondor is going to condemn you because you, you know what I mean? Gondor is a, a, a fake country from Lord of the Rings. If you don't know, do you know what I'm saying? Like the Ewoks are going to tell you in the last day, you know, like, if you followed me for the first part and I was like, you know, just like Luke Skywalker, you know, I'm going to be heroic. You're like, cool. And I'm like, but you know, you're going to stand before Darth Vader one day and he's just going to, you would immediately be like, wait, you just mixed like, wait, that, like that doesn't make any sense. Right? So if Jesus was referring to a legend or if he thought Jonah was not historical fact, he's made a very weird move in verse 41. Do we all see that? Jesus thought, I'm going to say really weakly there that Jonah and that the Old Testament recorded history to the point that those men of Nineveh who repented are going to be there one day. And you might see them rise up in judgment and literally say, all it took for us was a dude who got spit out of a big old fish, whale, whatever, to say that we were going to be judged and we repented. And you had Jesus come and talk to you and you didn't repent for shame. And everyone's going to know those are the guys from Nineveh. They repented. It happened. Jesus said it did, right? That's Jesus' opinion of the history in the Bible. Go to Matthew 19. Verse 4. Actually, look at verse three. The Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, now, again, this is not the main point of this passage, but in the nooks and crannies, you'll see something that helps us for tonight. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, and now he's quoting Genesis, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together. Let not man separate. We looked at another, another one of these passages like this last week. Today, what we want to see is very simple. That verse, verse five, he's quoting from Genesis two and in Genesis two. It is not necessarily a direct quote from God. It's just there. It's just like a comment from the author after the story. It just sort of says it. But Jesus says that Genesis 2 is God speaking. Do you see that in verse 4? 
he who made them at the beginning, verse five, said this. And then he said that when God said that, he was declaring that he had joined two together as one flesh. In other words, what the Bible says, God says. That's, that was Jesus's view. Um, look at, uh, I actually thought I had one more passage in here, but you don't have to take my word for it. Study and you'll find that he basically always assumes this. And there's other passages like this where he kind of flips back and forth between saying the Holy Spirit says this when it was written, you know, in Second Chronicles or God says this. And he's, he's quoting scripture. So he's, he's talking about scripture as if it's God's speech. That was Jesus's opinion towards the Bible. Um, the, uh, I don't believe, I can't believe I don't have it here. There's a passage where, uh, I think it's John 10. Let's see if that's it. Go to John 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Yeah. Again, look at verse 34, 33. Uh, Another passage where this is not the main point of this passage, and we're not going to get into what the main point is, but we'll see another sort of peripheral point here, and it helps us. Verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, for good work, we're not going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them and said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, now this is a weird argument. Go study what he's probably saying. It's very interesting. But here's the important phrase. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, then how do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent to the world? You're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. The key for us is in verse 35. Look at what Jesus says about the Bible. The scripture cannot be broken. Now that could be, you know, poetic language too, but what is he trying to assert? He's looking at them and he's saying like, we all agree, right? The scripture is the final word. You, you can't, you can't just say, well, that's not true. So let me, he would always do this. He always quoted scripture to like end the conversation. He saw scripture as final, the written word of God. Isn't it weird that Jesus quoted the Bible? You would think like if there was one human being in the world who didn't need to quote the Bible, right? It would be Jesus. We have to quote the Bible because we're not Jesus, but he clearly could just walk around and say stuff. But it's shocking that he didn't do that. He constantly quoted scripture as the final authority. I mean, he would sometimes quote himself as the final authority too. He would do that because he can. Here's what I say to you. But he never contradicted scripture when he said, I say, right? And on plenty of times, he didn't even bother to say, I say. He's like, what does Psalm say? Doesn't that settle the matter for you? What does Genesis 2 say? Don't you remember Jonah? He just always quoted the scripture and for him, that was it. Go to John 17. Verse 17. Jesus praying to his father. Sanctify them by your truth, he says. He prays. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. That's how Jesus felt about the things God says. And he was willing to say in many other places that what the Bible says is what God says, that when God had it written down, it really reports God's word. And Jesus says, it's true. It's true. He says, it can't be broken. He says, it must be fulfilled. He says, not a word, not a, not a mark of it's going to pass away. It's all heaven and earth pass away. Right. Over and over and over again. He's just showing us how he felt about it. Now, as a Christian, how Jesus feels about something is supposed to basically be like my final authority, right? 
That's why it's so weird to me that so often Jesus is played off against the Bible. Um, I'm really going out of order, but I think it's, this order is probably better. Uh, like you hear people say, you know, it's not about the Bible. It's about Jesus. And like, I think we all understand that, right? None of us would want to be like, no, it's not about Jesus. It's about a book. Like, no, none of us want to say that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, no, not the living, breathing Christ, a cold, dead text. You know, as people talk that way. None of us want to say that. None of us want to be that person, right? I worship a book. No. But that statement, it's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus, assumes that there's some kind of conflict between Jesus and the Bible. It assumes that Jesus saves us apart from or without the Bible. It assumes that Jesus would agree with that statement. It assumes that if Jesus heard me say, you know, it's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus, he'd be like, amen, brother. I'm glad someone finally figured this out. These people are so, you know, the problem with the Pharisees, guys, was not that they were too into the Bible. Jesus never says that about them. The problem was they were full of pride. And so that when, when the God of the Bible showed up in human flesh, they hated him. And it proved that they didn't really love the God of the Bible and they didn't really love the Bible. They loved what the text could do for them. They loved the power. They loved being thought of as intelligent. They liked sitting and making it a cold, dead text and studying their books. And really, they didn't even read too much of the Bible because, I mean, they did, but they also had just tons of commentaries on the Bible and they just read those all the time and lived in their traditions. And so they, they did. They become sort of cold, bookish people, it seems like. But the problem wasn't they loved the Bible too much. Jesus says, you search the scriptures and then you think you have life, but these are they that testify of me. The problem was they didn't see Jesus in the Bible, right? And when he showed up, they didn't recognize him because they weren't really reading it. They were using it. The only record of Jesus' thought that we have, the New Testament, how Jesus feels about stuff, the only way we can access that is in the New Testament, shows us that Jesus did not have that attitude towards the Bible. He saw himself as fulfilling it, as totally in line with it. In other words, what the Bible says, Jesus says. And Jesus and the Bible are an inseparable team. If someone's trying to separate them in my life and tell me that, just go with Jesus. And like the Bible is, you know, there's some issues with it. And maybe they're well-meaning, but they're not reflecting what the Jesus, the only Jesus we can actually know actually said and was like, he would have disagreed with them. And he would have told them there was something essential they were missing about what God's word is and how it works and his relationship to it. Am I, am I belaboring this too much? I hope not. So we don't have to listen to that. Don't let, don't let false dichotomies scare you, scare you away from loving God by loving his word. Um, I wanna get, I've given you two sort of responses to objections. Uh, let me give you three others, and then we're going to close. Um, number one, some, or actually this would be two, because one was the Bible never claims to be an error, but who cares what the numbers are. Uh, to say that, some people say this, there's some really prominent authors saying this right now to say that the Bible has no errors is to ignore the actual issues that scripture has with it. In other words, people say, okay, it's great that you say the Bible has no mistakes, but it, it does, right? It's got errors. It's got contradictions. It's got inconsistencies. It's got issues with science and it's got moral problems. The, now a real reply to that requires a whole book or a series of books, which have been written by the way. Uh, I'm not by me. And, uh, or many, many Bible studies where you go through each issue, right? So the only way to reply to this in short is to say this. And if any of you have specific questions, 
and you, you'd like to begin a conversation, I could do research for you and I can get you stuff and we could start talking about it. Um, the only way to reply to this in short is to say this. Any and all of those issues that people bring up, in the fact that John records the cleansing of the temple in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and the other gospels record it towards the end. The fact that Jesus says that something happened in the days of Abbey the Thar, the high priest, but the Old Testament record says it happened at a different time. I'm familiar with them. Like, there's, there's lots of these things that people bring up that are like, wait a second. I thought you said the Bible was without mistake, but clearly here, do you know what I mean? All of those things. Um, excuse me. I don't want to miss my place here are issues that have been brought up throughout, uh, no, I'm sorry, issues that have been thought through and answered by Christians over the last 2,000 years. I hope that wasn't too slow. Everything that people say. Because a lot of times people present these things as, as if they're new findings. Like to take the one about the cleansing of the temple. People will present that to you as though someone just discovered it. And it happens a lot in classrooms. And the press will say, read John 2, what story is that? And students read and say, is that the beginning or the end of his ministry? And they'll say, it's the beginning, right? Now read, and they'll turn to Matthew. Is that the beginning or end? And they'll say, end. And they'll go. What's that tell you? And students are like, it's different. And it's always presented as if it's new. As if like, <laughs> seminaries all over the world are now scrambling to come up with an answer for this brand new mistake that was just discovered in scripture. Do you know what I'm saying? But that's not the case. We're new. We're all under 50 years old. But the Bible's not new. And Christianity's not new. And thinking Christians did not, they were not all born after 1970. And some people really, they really sort of promote that idea. That older Christians check their brain at the door. But now our generation finally is going to begin to actually think about like, what the Bible really is. Right? That's just not reality. And the fact is everything that people bring up has been thought through for 2000 years and in the last few generations answered at an academic level. So whether you'd like to read what the church fathers said about it or whether you'd like to read like a scholarly monograph that's footnoted and peer reviewed and references all the latest research, you can read it at any other, at either level. It's been done. All you have to do is ask the right people, know how to use Google find the right journals, buy the right book on Amazon. And I'm not saying you have to be convinced, but I'm saying sometimes people only study the critics at a high level and they don't study the very good answers. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a bad way to do really anything, but like you could say it's a bad way to do science. To just study the one side and not the whole other scholarly side that, that has just as ably shown that you don't have to believe the doubts. Does that make sense? So just know that whatever you hear that supposedly says the Bible can't be inerrant because look at this issue, you know what I mean? Those things have good answers. Not things where you have to go like, that doesn't really make sense, but I guess I'll just, I'll just throw the evidence out so I can keep my faith. Not that kind of stuff. I'm talking about research, right? Okay. Another thing people say is that what about all the copying and mistakes over the years? Now, Christians only ever claim that it was the text of the original manuscripts, the things that Paul or John or Peter or Moses wrote that were without error, right? That is actually the only thing Christians claim. It's important to know that. We don't claim the King James Bible is inerrant. Do you know what I'm saying? But any faithful copy which reproduced that text, if someone took one of Paul's letters and copied it and they did it exactly, that would be inerrant too. Do you agree with that? You'd now have a co- so just being a copy doesn't necessarily introduce errors, 
And secondly, even though we're 2000 years into this game and we do have all kinds of different manuscripts with, with things, with variations. If you haven't heard that, if that, I hope that doesn't rock your boat. That's true. We can, we know this as Christians. We're open about this. We have thousands of them and we're able to tell, tell basically probably where mistakes are. And none of the major or minor teachings of scripture are affected by any of the, the quote unquote differences in, in the manuscripts. In other words, we might not know what the exact order of a sentence Mark wrote was the first time he wrote it, but we can do know exactly what happened, what that sentence is reporting and exactly what message the Bible writers were trying to convey. That's not in doubt. That is not in doubt in any manuscript. As I said to a friend a few weeks ago, there's no, if I, if I said this last week, forgive me, there's no copy of the new Testament where there's two gods or where Jesus didn't rise from the dead or where Jesus sins. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no, there's nothing like that in Christianity. And we're like, well, we'll just leave that part out of it, you know, and we'll suppress that. And they don't, those, those documents don't exist or where Jesus says, I'm not God. I'm just a human being. Do you know what I mean? Or, or where Paul preaches that you have to believe in Jesus and something else in order to get saved. The message is not in doubt. It's exactly known major and minor points. The history is not in doubt. It's exactly known major and minor points. There, there are some variations in spelling. There are like weird endings to the book of Mark that people aren't really exactly sure if it should be there or not. But in every version of the book of Mark, Jesus is risen from the dead and the story is over, right? So those things don't affect what we're talking about tonight. They, they don't inject errors into scripture. And the final thing I want to say is some people, sometimes people just say, you know, we don't need the Bible to be without error. We can know God anyway. Now maybe, but do we have any indication in scripture that God would have done things this way? Do we have any reason to believe from what God has shown us that he left errors for us to discover and left it to us to figure out what they were? In other words, how would we know if that's how God had done it? He does. He certainly doesn't say that about himself. He claims to be giving us like exact truth, right? This objection ignores the fact that without a totally reliable witness to the things God has said and done, we either have to give up the ability to really have confidence in what we can know about God, or we have to give up, or we have to give something other than the Bible, the status of inerrancy. We have to say that our minds have the power to know what's true and that we can trust our own thoughts, even though we can't trust the Bible. That's really always what happens. I can't really trust scripture, but I know I can trust my mind. Do you see what's just happened? Right? We have to pick some final authority. You can't escape that. You have to have some final authority for what you believe. And the scripture claims to be that final authority. Now you can disagree with it, but we shouldn't say that like, I agree with scripture and it's not my final authority. You know what I mean? I I love Jesus, but I know the Bible's full of errors. It just misses the point. Just say that your mind and your thoughts are your final authority. That's fine. Like God lets people do, choose their own path. But scripture claims to be that. It claims to have right over our thoughts. I don't have right over your thoughts. Pastor Joe doesn't. No church does. The Pope doesn't. But scripture claims that. It, because it claims to be the speech of God who made our minds. Right? Finally, go to Matthew 7. We're going to end in minutes here. The point of this whole thing is not, as I said earlier, to discourage thought or questioning in Matthew seven twenty four, The point of the, doing the study is not to discourage thought or discourage questioning, but instead it's to encourage, and this is so important, 
confidence, boldness, and action. This is the note I want to end on. This is really my prayer for this study. The point of looking at these things is not to shut people up. It's to encourage you, believers especially, to have confidence, boldness, and and then because of those things, to take action on the word of God. Look at Matthew 7, verse 24. He says, therefore, this is Jesus speaking, whoever noticed his logic, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods uh, came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus says, trust my words. And he always equated scripture with the word of God. Build your life on it. It's the only way to build an eternal life. And if you think the Bible's full of sand mixed in with the rock, cracks, unstable places, you won't have the confidence to build your life on it. You will always be thinking that you need, you need another foundation, something to shore up scripture. We will always then revert to our own wisdom, our own ways of thinking. We will revert to the wisdom of the times, the ways people always normally do things around us. We will not be building our, our house on the rock. We will end up building our house in the sand. And Jesus said, trust what I've said to you and build your whole life on it. And isn't this a great thing to study at a young adults meeting where you're at the beginning of that arc, you, you, you can still build your life anywhere you want. And if the Bible's not completely trustworthy, you won't build your life on it. You just won't have the confidence. And this could be a scary world. Cause you know, do we build it on the U S economy? Do we build it on social custom? Do I build it on my own, my own smartness and ability and good looks? I mean, really, what do I build my life on? What do I trust? Ultimately, what's the, what's the bedrock that I live by. Jesus says, I'm telling you, hear what I've said and obey it. Trust my words. It's the only rock. And when the flood comes, you'll stand. So the whole point of a study like this is that eternal lives will be built. God wants your life to make it past the ultimate flood, the flood of death. If you don't know Christ here tonight, this, this probably sounded like something that so didn't apply to you, but let me, let me show you that it applies. It applies to you right here. There is a God who speaks words that can be written down, understood and completely relied on. And he's calling out to you to turn your life in the direction of the teachings of Christ and build your life on that rock. If you don't know Christ tonight, Jesus is asking you to do that. And he's saying to you, I want your life to last forever. I want the life you build to make it through the flood called death and not to be destroyed so that you come to the other side and you're still intact. That's what Jesus wants for human beings. He doesn't want death to be the end. He doesn't want disaster and tragedy in life to be the end. He doesn't want war breaking out somewhere and messing up all our plans and screwing up the economy to be the end of our life. When the floods come and the rains and the rains descend and it beats on the house of my life, he says, found your life on the rock because I want you to last. That's the heart of God for human beings to make it through. And the only way you can do that is if you know that God's words are totally trustworthy. And I invite you, if you don't know Christ tonight to place your faith in the word of God, specifically the word that says we're all sinners. Jesus died for our sin. If I place my faith in him as my savior, I will be forgiven. If I call him Lord and bow the knee to him, 
I'll be saved. Last scripture. Go to Revelation 22. It's only fitting that we end at the very end of the Bible. Verse 7. Jesus speaks to John. John writes it down in verse seven. Actually, look at verse six. He said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his name. You know, guys, when everything's coming down around you, you're not sure what to believe. You don't know which way to go. Let that sentence float to the top of your mind when everything is confusing these words are faithful and true. Sometimes that's, you got to just grab onto that. Sometimes you're in the flood and you got to go, I don't know a lot of things, but I know there's a God who talks and I know his words are faithful and true. I can start there. It's like you sunk to the bottom of the river and you finally felt the rock. And now you know which way to start walking up the bank. And sometimes you got to let, let that sentence ring out. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of his holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which will shortly take place. God never wants us ignorant. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Notice now the connection between the book of Revelation and of the, all of scripture and the kind of lives we're supposed to be living and the nearness of Jesus is coming. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecies of this book. Now, I, John, saw and heard these things. This is the guy writing the book, right? He's, I saw this. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, don't do that. For I'm your fellow servant of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. The angel is like, whoever keeps the words of this book, I'm like, I'm with them. Isn't that interesting? Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Do you see the key here in verse 12? And my reward is with me. If I don't believe the word of God is totally be trusted, I won't live the kind of life that makes sense in light of Jesus saying, I'm coming really quickly and my reward is with me. Trust the things I said to you. Trust the Old Testament that I believed from, from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi. Obey my commands. Build your life on the rock. I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. Do you see like what's at stake here? This is not an academic discussion. This is all about like, who am I really going to be? What's going to be my authority? What's going to drive me? How am I going to make my decisions? Jesus says, I'm, I'm, I'm about to show up. Guys, that's true. The sky is going to split open. Every eye is going to see him. And in a second, every concept of reality in everyone's mind is going to change. And it's all going to match. Because it says the tribes of the earth are going to mourn when they see him. In other words, everyone's going to know exactly who that is. And it's going to be like, for a lot of people, it's going to be like, I mean, can you imagine every Muslim? It's the saddest thing. <laughs> it's him. Imagine every secularist. Imagine every person that went in and out of a church and heard about Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. It's so corny. You know, in one flash of an eye, it's not going to be corny at all. Is it guys? It's going to be like the least corny thing that ever happened in, in all of time. 
the most glorious thing. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me. He says, blessed are those who do his commandments. Verse 14, that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters. And whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus has sent my holy, my angel to testify to you of these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. And let him who hears say, come and let him who thirsts. This is for anyone. Uh, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely for I testify to everyone, John says, whoever hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life. Yikes. See what, how God thinks about the Bible, right? From the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. So the fact that we want to sit here and talk about the fact that the Bible has no mistakes. I just, I just wrote this to end. Here's our aim. Our aim is confidence in God's character as totally trustworthy, coupled with the confidence in the word of God as totally reliable, leading to confidence that obeying his commands leads to experiencing his promises. See, if I don't believe God's word is really true, why should I really obey his commands? Why should I see if his promises come true? And all of that leading to an excitement and an ability to release, to resist temptation, to risk persecution, to make sacrifices and to step out in bold faith and to do things for God. The point of this study is confidence and action. Because when I, when my life is founded on the rock and I know that God's true and I know that he has spoken things that were written down that I can understand that I can trust, then I get up and I live. And things happen in my life because I'm willing to speak the word of God into people's lives. I really believe that it's the power of God to salvation like Romans 1.16 says. I don't think that maybe that was a mistake or maybe Paul was messed up. A lot of people pit Paul against Jesus. You're going to see him walking arm in arm down the streets of gold in the, in the city. So don't pit Paul against Jesus. They're cool. Jesus called Paul. Jesus inspired Paul. I need to know that when Paul writes the gospel is the power of salvation, that that, that matters for my friends who need to be saved, whether they know it or not. And when I really have trust in God's word, then I live for the Lord. I don't just, I'm not weak and bound by sin. I'm not scared. I'm not reticent. I get it out there because when I look at someone, I know you think this is corny or whatever, or insignificant, but it's so much truer than anything you believe. And like, it'd be so cool for you to finally get your feet onto some solid rock. And and then we'll bring it forth to those that are around us.